This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. Good morning. It's a privilege to be here with you this morning. And this morning, my job is to help us in our work dealing and interfacing with the civil magistrate. And while I'm up here speaking, I'm not speaking in my capacity as a civil magistrate. I'm a private citizen on my own time. So I'm off the clock uh, for you all right now. So what do I mean about the term civil magistrate? Well, that refers to anyone in the criminal justice system who bears the sword. It includes the Department of Child Services. It includes police, prosecutors, judges. And I want to emphasize two things briefly this morning before we hear from our guests, civil magistrates, who are expert in investigating crimes against children, in particular internet crimes. The first thing I want to emphasize is our duty to submit to and work with the civil magistrate. The second is our calling to minister to the victim, the family, and the abuser in such a way that the civil magistrate isn't left alone to clean up the shambles that is left by the abuse. So in other words, this is the church's calling to serve as what has been called a mediating institution between the individual and the overarching state authority. So with that introduction, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. We'll read through verse 7. And as we read... Please think of this passage as God speaking directly to predators or you, to us, to our duty, and not resisting the civil authority and being in subjection to it. So Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the authority that you have given to the ministers in the civil realm. We pray that you would help us know how to submit to them in our ministry of caring for and shepherding victims, families, and predators in sexual abuse cases. 
Please build us up. Please edify us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning I'm working on the assumption that it is our habit to resist authority. That it is our habit to resist the civil authority and our work dealing with sexual abuse. This assumption is born of direct personal observation and experience. We don't trust the state. Why don't we? Well, the state has not exactly inspired confidence over the last 50 years. And when I say state, I mean the state broadly, not just the state of Indiana, but civil government in the United States. By striking down laws against pornography, abortion, homosexual mirage, the death penalty for child rape, hasn't the civil magistrate done enough? Thank you. We, the church, will take it from here. That's our thinking, whether we state that expressly or not. That's how we think. And more basic to our problem with the criminal justice system, with the civil magistrate, is its ethos of airbrushing away the moral agency of criminals. Through a project that probably began with the Enlightenment and was led by the church, the church wasn't following a long culture, the church was leading culture, that was led by the church, the civil magistrate has been airbrushing away the moral agency, the moral responsibility of individuals for the crimes they commit, for the sins they commit. And we see this very clearly in the language of crime and punishment. We don't call lawbreakers criminals in the state of Indiana and state government. We call them offenders. It's kind of bringing them a step removed from crime, the substance of the law they've broken. We don't call buildings that we house them in prisons. What do we call them? Do you know? Correctional facilities. So we we go away from the very solid and concrete Anglo-Saxon and we move to the abstract Latin to get away from the concrete. In my work in state government, I've visited two prisons so far, including the one where executions take place. And as we were being led around on a tour, I made the boneheaded mistake of referring to our protector as a prison guard, to another prison guard. And I myself was quickly corrected. Corrections happen there, and I myself was quickly corrected. So what, they're not prison guards, what are they? Correctional officer. Again, moving away from the moral agency of the criminal. Another reason for our resistance in working with the civil magistrate by reporting or working with sexual abusers to confess their crimes is this. What will it do to the family? What will this mean for the church? It's going to cause a scandal in the community. And even more basic to that, we fear the the loss of control. We fear the unknown, as another agency will be moving in and meddling in in our business, in the family's business. We also fear the damage to our own reputations. We feel shame 
when anyone in our family is accused of or has committed some sexual sin. Whether we've committed it or not in that instance, we feel the shame of it, and we don't want it to be known. As, the, as it, that applies to the family, it applies to the church and adds to our resistance. And so what we care about, what's precious to us, is not the family, not the victim, not the predator, it's our own reputation. Another reason for our resistance to the civil magistrate is that we don't believe in the sword. This is the tool that's been appointed by God. A sword isn't very graceful. You can't cozy up to a sword. You don't feel affirmed by a sword. And so we don't believe in the death penalty that is symbolized by the sword. And we don't believe what, what we're really rebelling against is God's justice. By rebelling against the sword, by resisting the authority. And we see God's justice as the red-headed stepchild of his perfections. That's the one we want to keep cordoned off and not really think about. It's kind of bothersome to us. It's annoying. We also don't believe in the bright line that is drawn by the law that is symbolized by the sword. I'm not talking about black and white versus gray. There's plenty of gray in life. But there comes a point where there needs to be a division. There needs to be a distinction. There there needs to be a cutting that is made. But we, in the 21st century, prefer an, an undifferentiated blob. And when I say an undifferentiated blob, I mean the chaos that is caused by the sexual abuse that's like a cloud around pig pen and that we just don't want to deal with it. And we, we were afraid to bring down the authority of the sword into it. Because we would rather that the blob, that the chaos, just resolve itself through this mystical process of grace. Even though scripture tells us that God has appointed the minister to do this work. So think of the blob as the chaos. You don't cut the blob. How would you know if you're cutting in the right place as you cut through the blob? That's not our call. It's the civil magistrate's call. We don't decide if and when and how the predator is punished. The civil magistrate decides that. We can form opinions about it. We can speak into it as we interface with the civil magistrate and dealing with the sexual predator, and dealing with the sexual abuser, but it's not our call, and it's, it's not our authority to withhold the abuser from his just deserts. Another reason we resist authority is that we don't want to do something that is irrevocable. And we are misled into thinking that acts of commission are irrevocable, irrevocable but acts of omission Oh, those, you can take those back. Those are revocable. They're not. We think that triggering the involvement of the civil magistrate is irrevocable and that maybe we can wait and play that card later. If the blob doesn't resolve itself, 
kind of gracefully, mystically on its own. The situation just doesn't, doesn't improve. But not making a decision is making a decision. One of the specialties that I've perfected in my life to high art form is delaying as long as I can to make a decision. And I come up with all sorts of justifications and really sophisticated rationalizations for waiting. I need more data. I need more evidence. I need to think about this. I need to pray about this. We need time. But what we don't realize is that not making a decision and acting decisively, this is one of the points that Pastor Bailey made last night, commits us to a course of action that through the inertia of life is going to be very difficult to deviate from. And we think that we, just, we didn't make a decision, but we made a decision. And so we're so afraid of failing in one direction by acting decisively that we fail in the other direction by being passive and still committing to a course. Okay, so these are the reasons for our resistance, but they aren't reasons to disobey God's command to submit to the civil authority. Romans 13 calls us to trust God and to submit to the authority he has so graciously provided us in the form of the civil magistrate who bears the sword. So that's the first point. Why do we resist? The second point is calling us to trust God and calling us to do the work of a mediating institution. The institution between the victim and the predator and the state to do the work of caring for them so that our civil magistrates aren't left with a chaotic mess, that they're the ones who have, they're exclusively responsible for cleaning up on their own. We don't want to leave that job to them. We have had very good experiences in our work as pastors and elders here at Clearnote and Pastor Bailey and uh, Mrs. Bailey's work and other churches around the country interfacing with the civil magistrate in all sorts of cases. Some involve vandalism committed against our church. Some involve vandalism committed by a member of our church. Some involve sexual abuse. Some involve, involve spousal abuse. And when we know of an abuse case, we want to work with the predator to confess his crimes to the, to the civil magistrate. And this aspect of our work is very difficult. Psychologists, according to Alan Bloom, are the sworn enemies of guilt. Lawyers form an auxiliary battalion. The the suspect, the criminal suspect, the Supreme Court tells us, has the right to remain silent. Actually, we do not have the right to remain silent, no matter what Miranda says. The criminal, the predator, has the moral duty of making a full confession of his crimes, no matter how horrible those crimes are. And it's it's our job, as pastors and elders, Titus II women, to make that confession full and complete as possible. The predator has the privilege under God to unburden himself, to be free at last from the burden of his sin, even if it leads to his incarceration, even if it leads to the sword dropping down. And I realize that's easy for me to say, but it doesn't make it less true. 
So when we call the predator to make a confession, we have, have already sifted through with him. We've probed. We've demanded the truth. We've asked. We've followed up. We've taken hints. We've put it together. We asked the questions to get the complete picture and as many details as we can of the crime. And then we go with him to the police station for him to confess his crimes to the authorities to make a good confession, a complete confession. We stand with him as he confesses. And we've been privileged to have the the commendation of civil magistrates, of judges, in our work caring for families, victims, and predators. That there's someone out there who's doing the work and not leaving the chaos, the blob, the shambles to the civil magistrate to do. And so it's our job to interface with the civil magistrate in these matters. And this morning we have an object lesson in the interface with civil magistrates because we have some with us today. It's our privilege to hear from three members of the Indiana State Police's division whose focus is on fighting crime, crimes against children, particularly internet crimes. And we'll have some time, hopefully near the end, for you to ask questions of them. Our main speaker is Rachel Sitars, who is working on her PhD in cyber forensics at Purdue University. She received her master's degree in cyber forensics and her bachelor's in law and society. She's a recipient of the Duo Security Women in Cybersecurity Award, as well as the Department of Homeland Security STEM Fellowship. She's been presenting on this topic since 2010, spoken throughout Indiana and in other places in the Midwest, as well as Washington, D.C. and California. We also have with us Sergeant Marty Metzger, who was a 1979 graduate of the University of Evansville with a criminal justice degree and a graduate of the Indiana State Police Academy. He worked as a road trooper for 10 years, as an undercover narcotics detective for five and a half years, and a white-collar crime detective for two years. In 1997, he was one of the original state police officers assigned to the Crimes Against Children unit. And there he remains today as, a, as the supervisor in charge of that unit. We also have with us Sergeant John Richards, who's also a 1979 graduate of the Indiana State Police Academy and a graduate from Eastern Kentucky University with a degree in criminalistics. He's been a road trooper. He's been on security detail for then-Governor Evan Bayh and an auditor for the Indiana Data and Communication System National Crime Information Center. He began his investigative career working online fraud and theft and was promoted to the District Investigation Commander at the Pendleton Post and in 2010, so for the last six years, has been assigned to the Internet Crimes Against Children, the Cyber Crimes Unit. So with that, I'm going to transition off the stage and I invite uh, Ms. Satars to come up and lead us through a presentation. At the end of that presentation, we'll come back for questions. Hi. Can you guys hear me? All right, I'm Rachel, like you said. Thank you for the great introduction. I'm gonna do most of the talking because the officers over here are kind of shy. Um, Before I get started, is anyone in here a Purdue fan? Oh my gosh. We have one. All right, boiler up. (laughs) I just had to do it since we're in Bloomington. (laughs) 
So um, thank you guys for having me. I'm going to talk about um, child exploitation. I've done a lot of research in my studies at Purdue on this topic and with working with the state police. Um, my, even though I'm in the College of Technology, I'm going to have a PhD of technology, which is so weird. But I have pretty much extensively researched these online bad guys. Um, I'm writing my dissertation right now, hopefully, before you know, I turn 100, I will finish my dissertation. Has anyone ever worked on a dissertation before? It's awful. It is so awful. And don't ask me how much longer I have, because that's the worst question. But at any rate, I, um, that, so that's what I study, and I do a lot of research on it. And so hopefully I have um, some good knowledge for you guys. And if you have questions, please, you know, you can wait to end, or feel free to stop me throughout and, um, you know, ask me to elaborate or whatnot. So go ahead and get started. Um, change the slide. Get it? All right. This is just a little overview of what I'm going to talk about. There's a lot that I was asked to present on. So I, um, you know, I'm hopefully going to get through all of it. Um, and hopefully I don't talk fast. Marty said that I talk really fast, so I'm trying my hardest to talk slow. I do, I can, you know, go off and just ramble and speak really quickly. So um, pretty much a broad overview of what I'm going to be discussing, but a lot of topics and a lot of information on these topics. So um, next slide, please. So I'm going to start by talking about child pornography online. This, um, is, this is what I did my master thesis on, and I'm kind of at Purdue which is really creepy, known as like the child pornography girl, which I don't like that. But all my research has kind of given me that name. But so um, I'm going to talk about child pornography online. I'm not sure how much you guys already have talked about that or know about it, but um, this is a broad overview about it. So child pornography is widespread online. It's everywhere. It's not hard to find. People always ask me, well, how hard is it to find child porn? It's not hard to find. It's all over. If you go into just open chat rooms, you can see people posting child pornography images online on these chat rooms, just talking about it, or they'll post links. I actually did a study in one of my courses. We had to do, it was a qualitative measures study. And I just sat online, sat in Yahoo chat rooms, and just watched what people were saying. I didn't participate, didn't engage. I just watched what people were saying and was recording it. It was an open chat room. You didn't have to log in or sign up or anything. You just really went onto it. Well... Over a course of six weeks, I made this huge list of things people were saying, and they were known child pornography words. They were they were websites, you know. They were directing people like, "Go here," or "Here's my login to this account. You can go and download all of my child pornography." It's widely shared, and they weren't even concerned about who's watching them, which is really crazy. I mean, it's really everywhere online. But with technology, you know, back in Marty's day, back way back when. Uh, <laughs> We like to pick on each other, so it's okay. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but, you know, back in the day, you had to send it through the mail. Don't do that anymore, right? That was a lot more risky, a lot, a lot more dangerous. Either post office would catch it or people you live with, your, your friends, your family, whomever, might get that mail and open it and find it. And there's a lot of risks with that. Well, with technology, who here has a cell phone on them? All right, better question. Who does not have a cell phone? Good. Wow. That's awesome. Good for you guys. Stay strong. <laughs> um, but with these, you know, with cell phones, with tablets, with computers, all of these devices, it's just super easy to go online and find it. Like I said, you know, I was sitting in this chat room just watching what people were saying, and they're talking about how to find these other websites. And just as quickly as one gets shut down, unfortunately, five more pop up. I was um, 
So one of my other jobs, I say really busy. I'm one of those people who has to have like a million things I'm doing at once because I'm crazy. But I was um, working on another case, and it was a hacker. And I was looking at what they were talking about. And they were saying, hey, this um, child porn site that you know a lot of us have been visiting got shut down. So here's like four more links. All the stuff on that server just got put onto these other links. Just go onto that site. It's the same thing. Same login credentials and whatnot. And so really, when it moves, when it gets shut down, it's just moving somewhere else. They have backups of their materials. They know where to go to send, you know, send people, go visit here to download more stuff. Or peer-to-peer. -peer. Have you guys heard of peer-to-peer -peer networking? Napster and things like that, where you can download like music and videos. There's child pornography on there. So, you know, there's so much of it online, and it's all over the place. So, you know, people ask me, how do you find it? How is it so easy? It's everywhere. There's a lot of people out there who are engaging in this. There's been some studies, and they're a little bit dated. They're, I think, maybe 2010. But there's some studies that came out of, I believe it was Australia. And the researchers say that there's a multi-billion dollar industry worldwide just on child pornography. So people are paying for it, too. Which just, how, how, did, how did they get away with that, right? It's just crazy. They're putting, obviously putting credit card numbers in somewhere. How is this happening? So, you know, there's, it's, like I said, it's widespread. I can't emphasize that enough. So these child pornographers, they like to download a lot of images. And in my experience, and the cases I worked while I was with the state police, and I'm sure that Marty and John have seen far more than I have, they, these predators build large collections. They save it. It's almost like baseball card trading. They want to have a huge collection because it's like a trophy to them. They're proud of it. They're proud of their collection. They are very methodical. From what I've seen, they, they save things very methodically. You know, maybe it's Rachel from Indiana, pictures of me. If, or, you know, maybe it's brown-haired girl, 13 years old, pictures of that in a folder. It's very methodical, very organized, because they want to retrieve it quickly, right? It's that instant gratification. You want to be able to click and find it, you know, and not have to work to find what you're looking for. But also I have found that a lot of times they'll keep other things that they're not necessarily interested in. But why? Because it's, if it's like baseball card trading, it makes them more valuable if they have more that they can trade with one another. So these bad guys, it's a, it is a subculture, but they communicate with one another. They're not just, sometimes they are, but not, not all the time. They're alone doing this by themselves. They're doing this with peers. They find these peers online. They engage with them in conversation. They, you know, connect on social media. They, um, and then they talk with one another, I have this. Do you have this yet? Makes them more valuable. Well, you trade me, you send me that picture that I want, and I'll send you this picture that you want. So the bigger of a collection they have, the more valuable they are in this culture. Pretty alarming, right? It's pretty crazy. Um, next slide. So some more about their behavior. Like I said, they trade this stuff. They connect on social media. They... Um, you know, they save pictures. They connect with kids on social media, and they save their pictures. So, you know, maybe they find me on Facebook, pretending I'm a kid, right? Maybe they find me on Facebook, and then they save all my, all my pictures. Why? Because when they're talking with their friends online, they can say, hey, this is who I'm talking to now. Look at this is who I met. You should find this person on Facebook because this is what she looks like, or this is what he looks like. And it's, like I said, it's like a trophy. Um, they also look for provocative pictures, pictures of kids, things that we think of as very innocent. Beach pictures. Summer's coming up, right? People post pictures in their bathing suits or on the beach. It's the summer. You don't think anything of it. These predators, to them, that's considered erotica. That's something that 
they're looking to save onto their computers, onto their phones, because that's, that's what they want to look at. So these pictures, you know, it's almost like, especially with kids, they don't, I guess, realize as much what they're posting. They're just putting, instantly putting pictures that they take online, right? And these predators are saving it, and they have no idea that they're doing this. That's one of the reasons that this grant that we got, you know, we can go and talk to kids and try to tell them, don't want to put these pictures online because you don't know who can be downloading that. And especially with kids, you know, it's a constant competition. Who can have the most Facebook friends, right? Who can have the most Instagram followers? Who can, you know, have the most people following them on Snapchat? Well, predators are taking those pictures that they're posting, that they're just, you know, essentially handing to the predators. And the predator's not going to say, hey, kid, I'm a creepy person who's going to steal all of your pictures and then show them off around the world. They're not going to say that. The kid doesn't even know that that's happening. Whenever I start to talk about this to kids, I mean, usually I'm, I'm pretty good at kind of the scare tactic a little bit. You can see it kind of like, whoa, you mean someone could be looking at this that I didn't know? Well, yeah, when you have an open profile and you're posting every single moment of your life, yeah, someone's probably going to look at that that you don't know. So, um, And you know with the predators, unfortunately, they're in this mindset where they don't care who they're hurting. They're manipulative. They're going to take advantage to get what they want. Their ultimate goal is to victimize a child, whether, you know, maybe it isn't even that they want to meet a child offline, but their goal is to fill this desire of getting these pictures, and they're going to do what they have to do, and they don't care if the kid's feelings get hurt or the kid gets exploited. They're trying to, you know, do this behavior. Next slide, please. So, like I said, they find one another to associate with. They create groups. Um, they, you know, they make little, like, Facebook groups. Are you guys on Facebook? Anyone on Facebook? Is anyone in a Facebook group? Some of you guys? There was, um, recently I was on Twitter, and a kid that I had as a student, a kid, he's older than me, so he's not really a kid, but it was advanced cyber forensics I was teaching a few semesters back, and one of my students sent me an article on Twitter that he found where um, sexual predators are making these secret Facebook groups on Facebook and communicating with one, one another and talking about where to find child pornography. But it's secret, so unless you're invited to it, you can't join it and you don't know about it, don't know that it's there. Well, I mean, is it really that shocking that they're doing this? For me, that's not shocking. Like, it's awful, of course. They shouldn't be doing it, and I wish that we could stop all of those, but... You know, they're going to find any means necessary to communicate with one another. They're going to do whatever they can to facilitate their, their desires, their, what they're trying to ultimately achieve. So, um, like I said, they talk about how to find the materials. They talk about how to hide it, how to hide their tracks, how to use um, new technology, all of that stuff. Um, like I said, chat rooms, there's forums, social networking sites, the dark web, which I'm about to talk about in a second. And then also, um, I wanted to talk quickly. Has anyone ever heard about Kick? Not many. Kick is like a, an, an app, I guess, um, where you can communicate with other people. It's like a messaging app. I had someone, um, it was a defense attorney. She reached out to me and she was like, Look, I'm looking for someone who can be an expert witness and help me with this case. My client is just a kid, and he was 20. He was arrested for child pornography, and I just don't think he did it. And I was like, I can do forensics on this phone if you want me to, but 
what I find, I'm going to tell you the truth. So if it's bad for your client, like, it is what it is. Apparently she trusted him enough where she um, really believed he didn't do it. And he was claiming he, was, he had the app, Kick, and that the child pornography was randomly coming to him on this Kick group. And the only way to get rid of it from his phone was to send it back to the group. So to save it onto his phone and then resend it to this group. And she told me that I laughed at her. I was like, that's not how that works. That's, that is not how that works at all. She was, she was very persistent. And I was like, okay, well, if you want me to look at, your at the phone, I will do forensics on it, and I will tell you what I find. Did the forensics. She was sitting with me, and it was not good for her client. It was, he was asking for it. He was asking for animal pornography. I mean, really, really, really bad things. And then you could see where he was like, oh, this is good stuff. I'm going to keep this. And when I, when I found that and I showed it to her, and she just put her head down and turned bright red, and she's like, oh, I can't believe I trusted him. I was like, told you I was going to be honest with whatever I find. So, um, you know, there's a lot of methods that these predators use to get this stuff. And like I said, it's widely available online, um, on apps, on the dark web, on phones, on all of that. So next slide. All right, so has anyone ever heard of the dark web? Does anyone actually know what the dark web is? Okay. So um, the dark web, or deep web, you probably hear them called both of them, dark web, deep web. So essentially, if you look at these pictures, like an iceberg, the top, the part that you can see, that's the clear web. That's the stuff, if you go onto Google, things that you can find. There's this whole other section of the internet that you have to use certain methods to access. So... The deep web typically, has anyone ever used a VPN client? So VPN, virtual private network, have to use passwords. It's just like an extra added security. That's considered the deep web. The dark web is below that, really far down deep. Usually you have to access it through Tor, but there's some other um, ways to access it. And basically you connect to Tor. It then gives you, and Tor stands for the onion router. So basically Tor takes your IP where you're at, and it sends it around the world. And then it assigns you a new IP. So I could be here, but it's saying I'm in Russia. So it's an added layer of anonymity. So there's all these other websites that you can access once you're on Tor. So once that your browser says, okay, this person is anonymous, they're running Tor, there's this layer of anonymity. Okay, now you can access these websites. And some of those sites are password protected and whatnot. Um, a lot of them move really quickly. And this is actually where my dissertation research is really at. Because a lot of cyber criminals go into the deep web. Why? Because they feel there's that added layer of anonymity and they won't get caught. So um, the dark web, it's pretty much, I mean, it's, it's called dark web for a reason. It's dark. There's a lot of really bad stuff on there. And on the dark web, a lot of child pornography, a lot of child exploitation, a lot of really bad, bad things happen. Um, there are legitimate reasons to use Tor. I have to say that because um, I do believe that there are legitimate reasons. But there are, is a lot of really, really bad stuff on there. So next slide. This is an example of a forum that was on the dark web. And it's called the Intel Exchange. And basically, this is just for people to exchange intelligence, exchange information anonymously. They can go on there and say, here's the link to 
more child pornography, or here's an email, or here is, um, you know, like the newest social media that kids are using or whatnot. They're exchanging intelligence. And it's, like, like I said, they feel it's completely anonymous. There is technology to figure out, I guess, your, who you truly are, but there's that added layer of, I'm super anonymous, I'm never gonna get caught. Next slide, please. This is another one that I had found. Um, this one, if you, I know that the print is kind of small, but you can see it says like, you know, how to make um, chloroform. There's another one, um, I can't remember where it was at, maybe. Yeah, about halfway down, planning on raping a kid or a girl my age, 16 years old here. So they're talking about it, and there's replies to it. There's, you can see there's 761, there are 761 replies at that moment. When I clicked on it, I mean, it was just alarming. The stuff, it, to say it was vulgar is an understatement. It was horrifying. But this is what people are being exposed to. This is what people are engaging in. I um, went out to Burlington, Iowa, and they had me come talk for three days to all their schools and their school district and their teachers and give training and their parents and all of that. And um, I asked how many of the kids had known about Tor. And surprisingly, I would say at least a third of the room raised their hands like, oh yeah, I visit, I go on tour every day. One kid was like, I post a tour like every single day, multiple times a day. And just, I mean, it was alarming. What are you posting on there? Why are you going onto the dark web to post? What can't you post on the clear web? What is it that you're engaging in? So it's really, it's really scary. Next slide. This is NAMBLA. I'm not sure if anyone's ever heard of that. It's the North American Man-Boy Love Association. And this is considered in the clear web. Um, it is a group of adult men who think that it should be legally and socially acceptable to have sexual relationships with kids under the age of 18. Um, but this is, I mean, this is, I guess, a little bit dated. I don't know, I can't remember when I took this screenshot, but this is what their website looked like. You could log in, you could buy, buy materials, buy things from their site, you can communicate with one another. The last I've heard, there is no child pornography actually being exchanged on it, just, you know, where to go find it, kind of, you know, deterring people over to different sites and whatnot. Um, so, I mean, that's really, it's really scary what's out there. All right, so next slide. So, I get a lot of questions. Why? Why do these people do it? Where do they learn this? How, what's wrong with them? Are they sick? What's wrong with them? I get all these questions, and I think a lot of them are the million-dollar questions that if we had these answers, we wouldn't be here talking about it because we would, we would know why they do this, and we'd be able to stop it before it happens. But um, I put some of the common questions that I get um, usually when I give these presentations, and were they abused? Sometimes. Sometimes they weren't. It's hard to say. I mean... In my experience, there isn't one stereotype that fits these people. It could be anybody. It can be someone who grew up in a perfect household and for whatever reason, they have this desire towards kids. Uh, what are common characteristics? The co most common one from my experience and from research is manipulative, highly manipulative. They groom their victims. They uh, are seeking victims who have maybe less parent involvement, maybe less friends, might have some sort of disability or you know, maybe, it's, maybe they have a learning disability or whatnot. They're looking for someone who is an easier target. 
someone whose parents aren't going to catch them, someone whose parents aren't looking over their shoulder, somebody, maybe, maybe they're a younger kid who babysits themselves, you know, they've had to stay home alone since they were 10. They're looking for those kids. And because there's less risk for the bad guy, right? Makes sense. So um, that's common characteristics in my experience, but... You know, we've certainly seen, if you watch the news, you certainly see plenty of cases where the person is a coach, the person is, you know, the person's uh, a lawyer or a professor. There was a case I, when I was still working for state police in New York where it was a professor, I think, at NYU who was looking at infant pornography. Like, what? You know, this person, like, you wouldn't think that. But so I really want to drive home that there isn't this you know, stereotype. The media has kind of made it play it out that it's this, you know, dirty old man who lives in the basement. And I wouldn't say that there necessarily is that stereotype of who this, per this person is. Um, what made them this way? Like I said, some are abused. Some are curious. Some have a um, power complex. Some have a pornography addiction. Just keep going down that path of getting more and more vulgar and awful things. Um, so there's a lot, of different, a lot of different causes that I've seen in my experience. Um, but the key thing to take away and to remember is that they come in all different shapes and sizes and forms. And, you know, there isn't, you watch the news, like I said, you will see these cases day after day, and they're all different. So it's something to keep in mind. Next slide. So kind of shifting a little bit to steps in the legal process. Um, you know, in this one... I kind of, the typical was kind of what I had experienced my time at state police. And I would say these cases definitely can take a long time. But, um, so it's either reported and then investigated. There's a search warrant and arrest warrant. Forensics done on the computers that are collected at that residence or at that office or wherever. Um, then there's either the plea or the trial and then sentencing. Kind of the typical, I guess, um, process. So there's a thing um, that I used to work on when I was at the state police. They're the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They have a cyber tip line, NCMEC for short. And people or social media sites, um, different avenues, they can, they can submit a cyber tip. When those are submitted to NCMEC, they analyze it, and then they sent it to the appropriate state Internet Crimes Against Children task force. So for Indiana, I was one of the ones who would receive those tips every single day. I'd get a report, these are the 10 tips today that have come in overnight or come in in the last 24 hours. So um, then I would take them and analyze them and do as much I could do, and then I would send it to an officer. And they would hopefully be able to investigate it further and then find the bad guy or you know, if the kid is in danger, go and help the child and, you know, try to go from there from after getting those tips. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, it's a fantastic um, resource. And if you guys have never visited that website, I have it down further in the slides too. But if you've never visited that site, um, I definitely suggest doing so. They have a lot of really good resources on there and being familiar with the cyber tip line because you can make tips yourself there. Just go on there fill out as much information as possible and submit it. Um, other than that, there's, um, in the legal process, there's monitoring peer-to-peer -peer networks, there's undercover investigations. I mean, there's a lot of different avenues to try to find this, but find these, these bad guys, but unfortunately, there's a lot more of them than there are of us, unfortunately. The length of time, it can take a long time. Any case can take a long time. 
if a child's in imminent danger, it's going to move pretty quickly. They're going to, the officers are going to figure out how to get there and, and protect that child very quickly. Um, investigation itself, looking into the background of somebody, doing analysis on phone logs or social media sites or whatnot, that can take a very long time. And with a high volume of cases, it can make it kind of last even longer, unfortunately. Um, and forensic exam. I'm, like I said before, I was, I'm a PhD in cyber forensics, and the tools, there's a lot of tools out there that make it really fairly simplistic, I guess, where you can click and find things, but it can take a long time because devices are so large these days. You know, I, my external hard drive that I have on me, it's a terabyte. That's a lot of space. That's a lot of data that can be saved onto that drive. And computers and phones, they're being made larger and larger. So doing forensics on that can take a very long time. And then when you add in, you know, how many, how many people have more than one computer? Yeah. So, I mean, exactly. You, you throw in the computers, the tablets, the phones. I mean, there's a lot of data to have to sift through. Um, so, you know, it, it can take an extremely long time. And I wouldn't say that there's necessarily one kind of standard go-to length of time that case will take an average. They all, all differ depending on how much, um, how many devices and how much storage space and whatnot that the person has. So next slide. I'm going to actually hand this one over to Marty. He's going to talk about the involvement of DCS. As Rachel said, she's from uh, Purdue. She got her degree there. She's still studying there. We made a promise that we weren't going to insult each other before we started this, but she blew that. Um, how many IU basketball fans in here? Several. I, too, IU basketball fan. Uh, my son graduated from IU a couple years ago. I've uh, been a lifelong Indiana basketball fan. The only one advantage that... Purdue actually has over Indiana is that, did you guys know that Mackey Arena was once voted the best place in the country to watch a basketball game? Actually was. You know why? Well, they don't have those pesky championship banners hanging in the way. <laughs> blocking your vision. Okay. Okay, what am I going to talk about here? Okay. When do we involve DCS? When do you guys involve them? Uh, or the Child Protective Services, which is a division of DCS. When do they get involved? When you call them. If you think there's a problem somewhere with the child that you're around, first off, ask them. Uh, most settings like uh, that we deal with, we get a lot of problems come out of schools. Not to pick on schools, we get a lot of problems that come out of schools. A counselor has maybe noticed a problem with the child. Uh, maybe the child is withdrawn. Maybe we got an A student that's now making D's or flunking out. Talk to the kid. Find out, is there something the matter? Maybe you know, maybe you feel that there's, some, there's a problem there, but the kid won't tell you. Call DCS. They have people that are specialized interviewers that will talk to this kid. Call us. We have people that have been trained 
training is called Finding Words. There's a, a basic and an advanced course. I've been to both of them. We're trained to talk to kids and get these facts out of them. What's the problem? Are you, uh, is there some type of physical or emotional abuse going on? If you call DCS first, they'll contact us. If we get called first, we will contact DCS. We have to. I mean, I want to. They're a great group of people to work with. Okay, after it's been determined that there's a problem, we can initiate a criminal investigation. Now, Rachel just talked a whole lot about what goes on when there's a criminal investigation that's initiated. Uh, she gave you a lot of information. There's a lot of work that goes on. There's a lot of people that's involved in one of these things. Uh, sometimes when we go do a search warrant on somebody that's been abusing a kid sexually and making a permanent record of that abuse by producing child porn, taking pictures and videos, when we go do a search warrant on one of these cases, sometimes there's as many as 20 people that go. Rachel talked about how much digital media is involved. That's why in Indiana we developed our digital uh, a triage program. We actually go, we have four or five sometimes examiners go that do forensics on computers, and we quickly look at devices to see if there's evidence on them or not so we can eliminate them. When we find evidence, we'll put that device aside, and then it goes back to our forensic lab, and we do a, a more involved or a deeper analysis of that. So if you notice that there's a problem, what does it hurt to ask? Ask this kid what's going on. If you suspect, if you think something's going on, maybe, it's, maybe there's a, a rational explanation for it. Or maybe something else is going on. Maybe parents getting divorced, grandparent died, something like that. Talk to the kid and ask him. It's our duty. It's our duty and it's our responsibility. Okay, the victim can be interviewed by either or both uh, CPS or law enforcement. We can also cause a physical examination by a physician. A lot of times if there's uh, sexual abuse that's suspected, we need that child to go for two reasons. One, to make sure the health of the kid is insured. And number two, there's going to be evidence. There may be evidence that can be used to prosecute this predator. Another thing that's going to happen after DCS or we get involved is possibly, more likely, the kid's going to get placed someplace where they're going to be out of harm's way. Usually, hopefully, we try to put them with a relative. If we can't, there's foster situations that are available. Uh, something else that DCS can do is they can educate you guys. Uh, on their website, there's information. NICMIC has a bunch of information on their website about child abuse, how to recognize it. It's your duty, if you're around kids, a teacher, or the situation you guys are in, it's actually your duty. Get on your computer and Google this stuff. How do you recognize abuse? We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, another big thing 
that uh, DCS will line up is counseling for these kids. We're going to talk later about, or Rachel is, about the effects that uh, the physical or sexual abuse has on uh, these young kids. Counseling is extremely important. Uh, and also, they will revisit that child after they've been into the system or uh, the abuse of the child has been discovered. DCS will go out, you know, again, hey, how's things going on? Or, or how's things going? Uh, you having any more problems? Things like that. Rachel? All right. Thank you. He'll be back. <laughs> All right, next slide. So um, part of the process with these predators kind of getting the child to trust them, it's called grooming. And it's pretty common when they're, when they're talking to kids, when they meet a child, it's a, you know, a pretty common process that they do this. Like I said before, they're not just going to you know, start talking to the kid and say, I'm a creepy predator who wants to take advantage of you. They're not going to do that. They want the kid to trust them. So, um, you know, like I said, they look for kids who are more vulnerable because there's less risk for the predator, less risk of getting caught, less risk of um, something bad happening to them. So, like I said, with um, those who are alone a lot, don't have parent supervision, don't have a parent who's looking over or monitoring their devices, um, maybe a kid that might be mentally or physically disabled, they don't, a kid that might not have as many friends or have, you know, a support network, um, and then kids who are just seeking attention. You know, I, there's a lot of kids, there's a lot of people who go online and are very clearly seeking attention. And I'm sure you guys, whoever's on Facebook has seen that person who posts something, you know, that they're trying to get attention. And the same with kids. Um, and a lot of kids don't realize it, that they're, this attention seeking is putting them at huge, huge potential danger. Um, you know, even like my, my cousin, she has four girls and we're, you know, we're really close. And um, one of her girls is 11 and she let her have a Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and everything. And I'm like, she's 11. Why does she have to have all this? But my cousin's like, oh, it's fine. You know, one of those, you know, rainbows and unicorns and just happy people all the time. And she's like, it's fine. And then my, the 11-year-old, she posted something and came not what it was. But this predator started sending her messages on Instagram. And she was like, oh, no, what do I do? I'm like, you don't let your 11-year-old have all these social media accounts, first of all. And then, you know, so I had to kind of walk her through what to do kind of um, reactively. So, um, you know, these bad guys are looking for a kid that, you know, might be more vulnerable, um, more at risk, so that way they are at less risk of getting caught. Um, they start with friending a child. You know, like I said, they're not going to jump in, hey, I'm this creepy person who's trying to take advantage. They want to be their friend. We're just going to hang out, talk about, you know, talk about puppies and, you know, just innocent things because that's going to get the child's guard down. The kid's going to be more trusting then. They want the kid typically to think that they're a peer. They're very rarely going to be like, I'm 42 years old if they're trying to talk to a 10-year-old. They know that the 10-year-old's probably going to be like, what? Weird, block, hopefully, hopefully. But, you know, so they're going to try to try to act as a peer. They're going to say, well, I'm, you know, I'm just 14. You're 10. I'm 14. I just want a relationship with you. I'm interested in you. Let's be friends. Let's have an online relationship. Um, but there are also cases in which the kid 
is looking for an adult to talk to. The kid's kind of seeking those adults. And that kind of, in my experience, that kind of goes back with that attention seeking. Usually there's something going on with the child that they're looking for extreme attention in one way, shape, or form and um, are seeking an adult. And they're not, in their minds, they're not thinking, I'm looking for a predator. They're just looking for this attention and they think that this is an okay means to do so. Next slide, please. So in um, the screaming process, it occurs over time. They, um, the predator builds trust in the kid. And this is, you know, this kind of goes hand in hand with the coaching. We've seen a lot of cases of coaches who are taking advantage of kids. And, you know, they build trust with these kids. They're their coach. They can lean on them. Um, there was a case that was in Lafayette um, years ago, but, or actually I think it was down in Indy, but one of the people that knew about it was in Lafayette. That's what it was. But this coach, the swim coach, was having a relationship that he had formed over the course of like a year with this 15-year-old athlete of his. And, um, you know, he got her to trust him, and over time it turned into a sexual relationship, and then eventually he got caught and is in prison, thankfully. But, um, you know, the, the damage that that does on the kid is unimaginable. So, um, you know, and then they start to kind of go into that path of the sexualization, start talking about sexual topics. But usually it starts pretty gradually. Like I said, it's typically a very slow process where it might start off as, you look really pretty today, or, you know, I want to see more. Send me a selfie of you. Send me one of you in your bra. And over time it gets, you know, more and more, and they're asking for more extreme things and eventually leading to the creation of child pornography or, you know, meeting in person and, and the child being molested or raped. So it kind of is that slow process that ultimately leads to something really bad. Um, typically, they'll compliment the kid, try to make them feel good about themselves. They want to build up the child's self-esteem. Why? Because then the child is more likely to want to continue this relationship. They're being complimented. They feel good about it. They're, you know, they're looking for a partner, you know, and they're young and curious and trying to explore and this person's making them feel real good so you know why would I question it so um that's you know that's that's very typical also sometimes they send them gifts I have seen cases where this predator sends you know sends gifts to the person's house there's one case um and I can't it was while I was still looking for state police and the child was getting these like computers and just crazy, you know, extravagant gifts from this person, from this bad guy. And um, the mom, she just would intercept the mail before the mom would come home. Mom had no idea. And this was going on for months. It was going on for a very long time. And I don't know how the mom didn't notice a brand new computer and, you know, all these, you know, shiny objects all over the place, but she didn't. And um, so, I mean, it, this happens a lot. Um, over time, like I said, they start asking for, like, to take, you know, take a picture of you naked or take a picture of you masturbating, take a picture of you, you know, having sex with somebody or, or whatnot. So it just gradually gets worse and worse and worse in what they're, what they're asking for. Um, so with the, so the child pornography, kind of going back to that, they share these images with their friends. So when they groom a child to start making these images or meeting them offline, maybe they meet them in person, and then they make these pictures together, these videos, these records that Marty had said, um, you know, they're, they're going to brag about it to their friends. Even though they're going to tell the kid, of course they're not going to show anybody, they're bragging about it to their friends, their, their online creepy friends, right? 
So there is a way where we can track, it's called SHA values. They're basically every single thing you do on a computer has a unique identifier. It's either a hash value, SHA value, there's some other names for them. And it's basically like, like your social security number. Every single thing on a computer has that. When you, let's say you're work, working on a Word document and I save it right now, and then I go back in an hour and I resave it, it gets a new SHA value, it's updated. It kind of just keeps changing because it's a new addition. So anything that's a known child pornography, the SHA value is recorded at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and they can kind of monitor what's being shared throughout the internet from those SHA values. If it's changed at all, if the picture is renamed or there's like a little dot that's changed in, just a little piece of color, can't track it anymore because SHA values changed. So um, these unique, which is what's really bad about this self-produced child pornography is these will have these values, but they're not known to law enforcement until that case has been caught and it's been, you know, we've identified the victim, the bad guy's gone to prison, we won't know those child values. So when a kid's talking to what they think is, you know, a boyfriend is actually a predator and they're self-producing these images and sending them naked selfies and all of that, that's new child pornography that's being produced and is going to be spread around the internet for indefinite amount of time. Uh, next slide, please. So this is um, a case I usually show it in uh, when I talk to kids. I like to show this, this um, slide. There's another slide that goes with it, but just for time, I didn't put all of them in there. But So this guy, he made this profile, and this girl is Kelly. She was a sophomore at University of Virginia. And her profile, she pretty much only friend requested boys who are like 13, 14 years old. Which I always talk, when I talk to kids, I'm like, that should be your first red flag. There is no college girl who wants to have a relationship with you, I promise. <laughs> the boys are always like, Whoa. I'm like, I promise you. <laughs> but um, after I show the profile, what the profile looked like, I then show this guy's picture. I'm like, what do these people have in common? Of course, like, nothing. I'm like, yeah, this is the person that was sitting behind the computer running this profile. So this Kelly girl that you thought you're talking to is actually this person. And this person is in prison for a long time because he was sending, or he was making these boys create child pornography and send it to them. They were sending it through messages, texts, or what have you. And they were creating child pornography for what they thought was this sophomore in college who wanted to have a relationship with them. So um, usually when I show this, kind of their faces turn white and their mouths draw like, ah. So um, it's usually a pretty good, pretty good tactic on my part. But, um, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it is true. Like when you're on, uh, make an, an account, when you're online, you don't have to be truthful. They don't validate what you're entering. There's no one who's checking, is that really your name? Is that really your birthday? Is that really your picture? There's nobody who's checking that. You can use whatever picture, whatever name, whatever information that you want on there. So, of course, the bad guy's not going to put their true picture. When they look like this and they're trying to get 13-year-old boys, they're not going to do that, right? They're going to try to appeal to what the, they think this target wants. Uh, next slide. So, um, impact on, on the child. As you can expect, I mean, they're going to be embarrassed, scared. Um, there are kids who don't understand what's happened or understand the magnitude of it or why this is not okay. Um, there are kids out there who think it's okay for this to happen. It's, and, you know, I, I would, I, and I have never worked for DCS, so I, I haven't had that experience of working with a child. But, I mean, I can't imagine um, 
the, the background that they've come from where they think that this kind of relationship is normal and okay. So um, not to say that every child's been in a situation where they've been prior molested or, or anything, but I mean, to think that it's okay, just I, I always wonder what has happened, unfortunately, to that kid in the past. But um, as you can imagine, you know, there's a kid's going to be embarrassed. If, if a kid found out that the person they've been sending naked pictures to was that guy on the last slide, they're going to be pretty horrified about that. That's going to stick with them. They're going to be embarrassed. They're not going to want to talk about it. It's going to be on the news, and you know, the kid, his, their classmates are probably going to find out about it and make fun of them, unfortunately, and there's going to be a lot of bad repercussions. So um, ultimately, it could lead to being afraid to trust. I mean, I, I imagine that in this kind of situation, you're going to build up a lot of walls and really be afraid to be in a normal relationship. Um, a lot of times, these, these kids are afraid to report it or afraid to talk to anybody. Part of the time is because these predators are so good at manipulating them that sometimes they'll manipulate them into thinking that this is a normal relationship and it's okay and that they shouldn't tell anyone because they're in love. There are times where it's called sextortion, where they're these bad guys have gotten, I guess, um, a hold of these kids completely, where they're saying, if you do, if you tell anybody, I will hurt you, I will hurt your family, I will, you know, I know where you live, I will come to your house. They're threatening them to keep doing what it is that these bad guys want them to do. So, um, you know, a lot of times kids won't report it because they're afraid, because these people have, have manipulated their minds so much that they're afraid to tell anybody. So, um, and, you know, they're afraid that they'll get in trouble, too, for what they've done. And when I talk to kids, you know, and I talk about sexting and why they shouldn't do it and how technically it is illegal and, and whatnot. And, well, for if you're under 18, that is child pornography. So technically that is illegal. They don't need to know that they probably won't be prosecuted. But I like to scare them to think they'll go to prison if they sext. But anyway, I, I then go on to talk to them. If they're in this situation, you need to tell someone. You can't keep it to yourself. And so creating um, an environment where kids can talk to you is really important. That's something that you guys as, as leaders need to make sure that you know that the kids know that they can come to you. Um, for me, when I go out to schools and talk to kids, I give them my contact information and say, hey, reach out to me. If, if you don't know what to do, talk to me. Like, you can talk to me. And so I think that's part of the reason I've been successful at these presentations because kids kind of look at me as a peer a little bit, and I have had a lot of kids who have come up to me after a presentation, or kids who have reached out on Facebook, or have found my Purdue email, or have contacted me and saying, this is going on, and I don't know what to do, and I'm terrified of it. Please help me. So, um, you know, making sure that kids have someone, that, a resource that they can go to is really important. Um, next slide. So, um, the impact on the family. You know, if it's a, if it's part of the family, a friend, teacher, coach, um, you know, somebody who's trusted, that can be really hard, um, really, really difficult on the family. That can be difficult on everyone involved with this. Um, embarrassment, shame, hurt, anger, how could you do this to my, my child? Um, you know, the, the mother can sometimes be blamed if it was the father or stepfather. You know, how did you let this happen? And I've seen this happen a number of times um, where, you know, it's the People are telling the mom, "How you were in the house. How did this happen? How did you let this occur for so long? Next slide. Um, emotional and physical signs of abuse. 
A lot of times kids, if they're online talking to someone, they're going to start to be private and they're going to try to bring their computers or their phones. They don't want you to look at it. They're going to shut the screen real quick if you come by. They're going to go to their room and close the door, um, being very secretive, withdrawn, easily defensive, um, seeming on edge. And Marty's going to talk a bit more about these. Uh, where'd you get down to? The seeming on edge. Okay. Uh, some other... Some other aspects of when you're looking at a kid to find out if they're being sexually abused. Obviously, trouble walking or sitting. Well, that can be attributed to a lot of different things. Kids play, jump, run. Well, not as much as they used to because they're sitting in front and using these electronic devices. But if you've got a kid that's having trouble sitting, walking, that needs to be investigated for several reasons. Number one, it could be some kind of unrelated physical problem or they could be being sexually abused. Uh, displays a knowledge or interest in things sexual at an inappropriate age and to go along with that seductive behavior. If you've got a four-year-old girl that's sitting in your lap and making any type of sexual movement or looks like she's trying or it could be conceived that she's trying to sexually arouse you, there's a problem there. Uh, make strong efforts to avoid a specific person, maybe somebody they've been tight with, okay? A friend of theirs, somebody they really got along with, uncle, family friend, and all of a sudden they want nothing to do with that person. There's a problem there. Doesn't want to change clothes in front of others or participate in physical activities. There's something going on there, or can be. A lot of kids, when they get to be a certain age, uh, that's a problem for them anyway, but, you know, pay attention. Look for cues if you see something like that going on. Obviously, sexually transmitted disease or pregnancy in a kid, a girl under 14 years old, under 14 years of age, something going on there. It doesn't take a rocket scientist or a Purdue grad to see that. <laughs> Runs away from home. That's, there's always going to be something there, and a lot of times, that's what that is, being sexually abused at home. That's where you're going to get your runaways at. I just realized uh, why they're taping this is uh, they're going to be able to play it back at a slower speed later and understand what he said. Uh, Marty. All right. <laughs> Next slide, please. Um, only a few more, a few more slides. I know I've kind of gone long, so sorry. Two more minutes? All right. So, um, you know, long-term impact, it's pretty much the same as, as we've already discussed, but you know, it can really impact how someone um, sees relationships or whatnot for the rest of their life. So it's really important to get them into counseling. Um, next slide. I think we've already hit on this, but, you know, it's really important to report it. Don't try to deal with it yourself. Go to someone, you know, bring that child or that, if the predator's ready to disclose, bring them to, to law enforcement and, um, you know, report it. It needs to, we need to be involved and take care of that. Um, next slide. So, and you can go on to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, the missingkids.org, and um, report it too through the cyber tip line. But if you think something is, um, if you suspect something, you know, like I said, if you think something is going on, report it. Tell someone. Um, help that child, be an advocate, you know, if that person's ready to disclose, 
take them to the police station and have them go and, and report that as well. So um, last slide, Just questions. That's my cat, Russell, and he always has questions, but um, hand it over. So. We'll take one public question, but our guests have, have agreed to stay with us for lunch, so if you have other questions and we're not able to answer it here, we'll be able to answer it during lunch, and they're uh, going to make themselves available for that. I would like to say one thing. I was not going to say anything, but I'm going to. First of all, I want to, is that working? Yeah. Okay. First of all, I want to thank you guys, the teachers, the pastors, all the leaders in the church <clears throat> for what you do. You've, you have taken on this responsibility to do that little extra. The Lord spoke to you, said you needed to become a pastor, you needed to teach, you, whatever it is, your role, be an elder, whatever, your role in the church. Trust me, I, those that are local here know about the Park Tudor thing. Which, which was worse, that they tried to hide it or else it occurred? If they would have taken that guy when it initially occurred and they brought him to the police station and had him arrested, and if you're not familiar, I'm more than glad to talk about it later, or the fact that they were caught covering it up. We here as, as police officers, we don't want to embarrass you. That's not our job. Those of us that are in this are here to protect the child. I get from a, from a spiritual side of it, you want to help the, the predator, what we call the predator, the, that person. You want to help them. We don't, but we want, to help, we want to help them go to jail. We want to help them stop the action they're doing. But our focus is going to be on the child. If, in fact, this does occur, remember, we're not trying to embarrass you. That's not what we want at all. And if, in fact, this does occur, you know, please come. And when, you, when you make your contact with police, with any kind of law enforcement in, in wherever you're from, that's not our role. All right. Our role is to protect that child, to protect the victims. That's what we focus on. That's why we do what we do every day. But as I said, God bless you for what you guys do. You've, you have taken on that. And, and, you know, he spoke to you and said, I want you to do this. I go to a full gospel church. So when Brian was speaking, I almost come out with a few amens. And I didn't know how, that, I didn't know how well that would have gone over. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so... So please, you know, like I said, thank you very much for what you do. And, and always remember, you know, we're from the government. We're here to help. <laughs> On that note, thank you, John. Thank you, Marty. Thank you, Rachel, very much. We're so happy and uh, so grateful for your, your work helping us today. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.